Welcome, everyone, to Historia, a podcast dedicated to the study of history and culture. I am your host, David Williams. Let's get started. With me today is Dr. Aaron Astor, Associate Professor of History at uh, Maryville College in Tennessee. Aaron is an American historian focusing in on 19th century. He is going to talk to us today about the sort of a primer of history of voting in America, because what we do today is not what we've always done. I'm, with our current system, you know, you, you hear all these things about mail-in ballots and absentee and uh, Aaron, I mean, I'm old enough, I'm sure Aaron is too, to remember when hanging chads were a thing that we all learned about. Voting has always been a little bit... Uh, experimental in America. It has changed very much over time. And Aaron, talk to us about uh, American history. All right. Well, uh, the history of voting is in many ways the history of America itself. I mean, America has been, even during colonial times, there were elections that were held for uh, colonial assemblies, for um, town offices in New England. Uh, There were, of course, limits to how how much power these offices held, but uh, voting was something that was widely uh, emphasized and understood, and, and and the right to vote was wider in North America in the colonies than it ever was back home in, in Great Britain. But there was a, uh, the physical process of voting uh, for a long time was verbal, public and verbal. I mean, you literally raise your hand or you show up, they would have poll books. Sometimes they were listed by color. Places had very, very different kinds of traditions. But they would, you know, you would have people who would who would count votes and, and for, for various uh, positions. A major in in the American Revolution, when you have states like or colonies becoming states like Pennsylvania that establish new state constitutions, they really start to formalize a lot of these processes of deciding who is allowed to vote, which is a very, very important consideration. And then the sort of the process of basically counting the votes and recording them and then accumulating them. Um, and that's so the revolution is kind of a moment for that. And and it's important that it happens often in the context of the war itself, the Revolutionary War. I mean, a lot of these, there are, a lot of times people people forget this, that the American military tradition, uh, to a large extent, was volunteer and sort of bottom-up in a way. People literally elected their captains and their colonels in these, uh, in these various battalions and regiments during the Revolution, and certainly also during the Civil War. So there was a tradition of that kind of thing with militia musters as, as a kind of a point when you could, as almost like a, a point of voting. They... Um, in that period, the uh, state of Pennsylvania w- had some of the widest suffrage, um, some of the loosest suffrage requirements, and that was deliberate. It was sort of part of Ben Franklin's ideals as part of the sort of the nature of the way Pennsylvania, sort of egalitarian culture that it had had from the very beginning. And, um, you know, there were restrictions on things like property, property ownership, but it was fairly low there. And because property was fairly widely held in that, at least in that place, uh, the a pretty large percentage of the white male population was able to vote. Now, obviously I've, I've entered two qualifications in there, white and right. male. And there's, you know, nearly everywhere had forbidden women from voting. New Jersey, interestingly, did not. Um, and it was almost an afterthought, but there were women who did challenge that. But then, you know, women were ultimately excluded from there. As far as uh, whites, this was also somewhat more fluid. Uh, there were a lot of places where they did not specify by race. It was not, in many places, it was not until the 1830s that uh, states like Tennessee and Pennsylvania and North Carolina passed laws that simultaneously expanded the right to vote to non-property holding whites while taking away the rights to votes to Mm -hmm. African-Americans. This is that sort of the Jacksonian move where uh, people call, you know, the term Heronvolk democracy often applies, where it's sort of the uh, democracy of the master race, democracy of all white men, but you're excluding the right to vote of any uh, of any non-whites. But there were some places that continued to have property restrictions. Uh, Rhode Island continued to have some weird property restrictions. Uh, New York had some uh, and can lingered for African-American voters. But by and large, those tended to go away in the 1830s. Now, as far as the mechanics of voting, these were, these were largely communal acts and very public. And what happened in the, really in the Jeffersonian period, so the early 
early 1800s, you start to see a lot more elections. I mean, that's really the, the biggest expansion is, is we, we think of the Jacksonian era. It was actually the Jeffersonian era of the early 1800s. You see a lot of expansion in not only the right to vote, but in the number of offices that are put up for election. So you have elections much more commonly. And these would be held in precincts in very rural areas. Much of America lived in rural places, and they would be held in ad hoc, you know, some so-and-so's tavern or so-and-so's you know, uh, mill or whatever. They would just simply ho- have an election uh, location there. And the, the local sheriff of Justice of the Peace would, would preside over these elections and, and count them. Um, but you did not have... The, the, the biggest change that develops, though, is partisanship. Political parties are, of course, not were not originally designed in terms of the way the Constitution was developed, but fairly, you know, not long afterwards, people were started to identify with political parties. And why that becomes important is that you start to get in the Jeffersonian period, and then particularly into the 1820s and 30s, this idea of an election ticket, where you have a ticket that has on the top of it the main office, it could be electors for president, it could be the governor or whatever, and then you have all these various, you know, circuit, uh, you know, coroner or whatever, all these various constable, all these various other positions that are on the ballot. And this becomes a very important pattern for the next several decades, where the political parties actually printed the tickets. And they would hand these tickets to voters. And the voters would have to choose which ticket they wanted. And you had to vote. You were essentially, when you dropped that ticket in the box, you voted for everybody on that ticket. If you wanted to split the ticket, you had to physically cross it out and write in somebody else. As voting expanded dramatically in the 18, I mentioned first 1800s and teens, and then you had another big wave of it with the Jacksonian period, the 1830s, and as presidential politics starts to become a much more popular, popularly engaged phenomenon, particularly with the election of 1840. I mean, that's the, the log cabin hard cider with Harrison and the Whigs versus the versus Martin Van Buren of the Democrats, uh, who's running for re-election in the middle of this depression. There is something like you end up with something like 80 percent turnout of the eligible, essentially adult white male population, which is one of the largest ever. But the reason for this is that both parties start to develop this this sense of a machine, that they can go out and they can literally drag people to the polls. And they will, you know, they can cajole them, they can do these all sorts of mechanisms to try to encourage them to come out. But polling places became almost these festive Although sometimes fistfights break out, I guess it happens <laughs> in festive places sometimes, especially with alcohol. But there, there was almost a um, almost a carnival atmosphere to polling places because people would go there. You had some people just lingering there, hanging out all day, and you know, for some men it was a very dignified thing, and they would go in and drop. But th- then you had others who would come in as a group. Sometimes they would march in, sometimes with weapons. They would march in and. You know, generally speaking, they would carry their tickets with them because they could print them out in the newspapers. Uh, if they did not have them, then you would have party representatives there who would be willing to hand them out. But they're literally in front of each other, like competing to say, like, if you have a, a, a voter who is undecided, you know, the undecided voter at this point is going to have, you know, representatives from both sides that are literally trying to give him the right ticket to drop into the box. And you had a judge there who would observe this and they would drop into the box and then count them. And these these tickets, these uh, elections would be, I mean, so, so it's very public. The uh, because you had large-scale participation and not everybody's literate, you started using lots of symbols. I mean, this is you know, the origins of roosters and donkeys for, and elephants and all these kinds of things for the different parties. Um, lots of symbolism for people who could not fully read the whole ticket to make it easier. Now, some uh, states like Kentucky, continued with what they called viva voce voting, where you literally verbally announced your voting. In fact, they had that up until, I think, 1891. They were the last state to get rid of that. And that was designed, as I said, for people who can't read, you know, so that way they can announce it. But again, these were not private decisions. (laughs) This was nothing like what we do today, where you go in there, you have the privacy of the booth there or the machine or whatever, and we take it very, very seriously that, our vote is our private thing and I don't have to tell anybody. I mean, there was no hiding it. And so if you were for party operatives, it made it easy to figure out, well, how many men do I, how many people do I need to get to come to the polls? And this is how things went really from uh, the 1830s up until about the 1880s. For this entire period, the voting process looked pretty similar this way. Uh, election sites were often sites of violence, sometimes not necessarily between partisans, sometimes just drunken brawls, sometimes just, you know, uh, 
extraneous things because you had all sorts of ne'er-do-wells hanging out. But sometimes there were, you know, fights over the actual election itself, over the, you know, the candidates of the election. But these were, um, again, a very, very public process. Uh, people could, uh, and of course, also very masculine spaces. There were very few women there. Uh, it was considered dangerous for women or, or uh, unladylike for women to even show up to these places. Oh, wow. In fact, one of the arguments later on for women's suffrage is that it would clean up politics because <laughs> these male spaces were so corrupt uh, morally and you know just politically corrupt. So, so elections voting was a very sort of mass, there was a performance to it. There's a ritual to it. All of the banners, all of the, you had cornet bands, you had people, it was, a, it was a collective process, I guess is the best way to describe it. It would go en masse, it would go together to the polls to go and, uh, and, and uh, count their votes. Now, of course, there's major differences between urban and rural areas. Um, I've been in my own research looking at uh, different, very different places. I can talk about that in a bit. But um, in rural Mississippi, for example, Mississippi held elections for everything. Um, and this was part of sort of the Western tradition. So they would have uh, elections where they're called uh, uh, board of police, which is kind of like uh, county commissions. And they would hold it at, you know, Vernon's house or something like that, or, you know, some person out in the country. And, you know, they would tick and tie who all the people voted were and uh they were throughout the year too it's not just you had one election um so you know nowadays you look at polls right to see to gauge what's likely to happen back then you would look at election results of minor elections special elections for whatever and use that as a gauge for what's likely to come next and because and it's true now too partisan habits were very very hardwired in many cases you kind of grew up as a member of it and people didn't change their partisan position very much unless the whole system blew up um you could often tell they would often count well how many more democrats we have than last time how many more republicans we have than last time that those are the kinds of numbers they would say to see to to gauge turnout and the fact that the population is growing so many places you're really trying to figure like in Cincinnati, for example, how many more German immigrants are coming in here that are going to that have been naturalized and are allowed to vote? And you know, they were one of the few swing German Protestants. Are they going to vote for the Democrats, the Republicans in this precinct of Cincinnati or whatever? Those are the kinds of things that newspapers are trying to tally to, you know, forecast basically what they think is going to come. So this is again a very, very raucous, very public process and sometimes violent. But it was there was a ritual to it after a while. People really came to um, you know see it as natural. They had to sort of police each other. There was not you know nowadays you have these you know no electioneering signs whatever you know just the opposite back then. <laughs> that was the opposite. It was the opposite exactly. So anyway, this is how things were. The, this they changed dramatically in the early 1890s. And what happened was uh, the introduction of something that they called the Australian ballot, which was a secret ballot. Somehow, I don't know if Australia was actually the first place to use a secret ballot, but it was popularly called the Australian ballot. Hmm. And the reason for the secret ballot was essentially to eliminate voters, as they saw, to clean up the voting process, because to get rid of bribes, to get rid of ignorant people, whether they're immigrants, whatever. This is the same time you have mass disfranchisement of African-Americans in the South, but you also have efforts to disfranchise Italian immigrants and, you know, Eastern European immigrants, people who are deemed to be, you know, the, the, they're deemed to be outside the, the polity, okay, the democratic polity. I mean, a lot of this is about who really is part of the democratic polity. And there were a series of efforts that were designed to try to limit that. Uh, one of them was the move to the secret ballot. The other was the beginning of registration systems which was not a thing before that. You had, to, re- you had you know, to register voters ahead of time. And, and some of that comes out of uh, post-Reconstruction uh, of efforts to try to you know, curtail African-American voting. But again, a lot of this was used against immigrants in, in the North as well. And if you look at voter turnout between 1888 and 1892, you see it drop quite a bit. And that's deliberate. I think it's 8892, maybe 8896, but I think it's 8892. And it's a, there were a series of things that happened during the, you know, we don't think much about Benjamin Harrison and Grover Cleveland, but this actually was in that period, in that window in there. It's also, by the way, the same time they added, they added like a whole bunch of new states, the two Dakotas and Montana. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of this had to do with 
Grover Cleveland is a guy who runs, who wins the popular vote three times in a row, but only wins the Electoral College twice. He misses out in 1888. And it's because of New York, his home state. His home state rejected him in 88, but went back to him in 92 and had gone from 84. And that was because of major factional politics inside the New York Democratic Party. New York Democratic Party was, there was the Tammany Hall very Irish uh, immigrant wing. And then there were the reformers and Grover Cleveland was this gold, you know, the, this reformer wing, mugwump reformer wing. Um, and they hated each other. I mean, despised each other. Of course, Republicans had other big factions too, but that was one of the, you know, his failure to win the Tammany people is why he lost New York and thus the presidency. So Harrison was trying to figure out, well, how can we, you know, codify that and make sure they keep these people out and they sort of backfired. Uh, and Grover Cleveland ended up winning New York again. And I mean, there's a lot more pieces to it, but, but it's the point is it's in that period where you have um, all these, uh, in fact, that's the last time you have an effort of Congress to try to enforce voting rights for African-Americans in the South, 1890, what they called the Lodge Bill, which gets uh, voted down. So anyway, that, and that kind of leads up to, you also have this upheaval with the populists who come up, this third party movement, rural populists, particularly uh, Tom Watson in the South and Weaver in the West, and of course, culminating with William Jennings Bryan. And they are, you know, once again, you know, as, as, as these restrictions are coming down against the poor, particularly rural, they, they, are, they see this as a, another cry to, you know, go against this. But then again, especially in the South, you have these new constitutions in the 1890s that explicitly uh, remove poor people, black and white, from the, from the voter rolls, in some cases, uh, almost entirely until the 1960s. I mean, Virginia, the... Uh, the uh, voting rolls dropped to just a tiny percentage of the adult population. Oh, wow. So it's, uh, and it was, you know, on the surface designed to eliminate black votes, but it was also eliminating poor white votes too. Anyway, so that happens and voting becomes uh, secretive. It becomes more individualistic. And it, but of course it's, you know, this is all part of the capital P progressive era of trying to clean things up. And you have countervailing forces out in the West. You have different elements. You have calls for new referenda you have calls for initiatives and things to because they see the uh, legislatures as so corrupted you have a lot of countervailing pressures in there but the voting process has changed dramatically with this introduction of the secret ballot now of course the next big change is going to come is women voting which is going to come starts to come in some states in the 1890s but it's going to become national, of course, with the 19th Amendment, 1920. And a lot of the arguments for it were that it would, um, it would lift up the, the um, it would almost restore the sanctity of the voting, voting place, that men, these corrupt men in saloons, you know, because it's going at the same time with, with prohibition, that these corrupt men in saloons are making these backroom deals and women will clearly clean this process up. So that's how voting is going to now is going to be men and women. And again, is more ritualized into uh, inside the private voting booth. And it's going to last that way uh, until the 1960s. Now, one other thing I should mention, and then I'll throw it out to you if you have questions here, is absentee ballots, which is coming up now, too. The first time you have large scale use of absentee ballots is during the Civil War. I think there are some episodic cases earlier on, but at the first large scale use is during the American Civil War. And it's the 1864 election. Because you have lots of voters in from places like Pennsylvania that are out in the field in Virginia fighting for the Union Army, and they could be decisive for this election. At first, nobody knew if they would support Lincoln or McClellan right. because many of them had fought in the Army of the Potomac, and McClellan was considered quite popular among them, many of them, you know, the Democrat. But as it turned out, particularly because McClellan's, the platform was a piece, you know, copperhead, essentially, as they saw it, um, and they really resented those folks, they voted overwhelmingly for Lincoln. And that actually turned the tide in many, in many states. But there was a question of how do you collect those things, when do you actually, you know, corral all those votes and when you report them back the telegraph made that a lot more easy a lot easier to do um you, know, you could report those you could tally those votes and report them back and you had the issue at the time of whether or not they're being influenced by their officers which nobody knew which way they would be influenced they have their democratic officers going to make them over mcclellan or their ultra radical abolitionist officers going to make them vote for lincoln you know or what, or what have you um, either whatever it was, they voted and it, they went back home and was recorded in the, in the precincts and they, and they would be that uh, often 
made the difference in many in many states uh, to, to vote heavily for for Lincoln for 1864. So that's a that was a new wrinkle, and you would have the same thing again with uh, of course the the two world wars. But that's you know elections kind of worked that way. You know the very public process. Everybody sees who's who you're voting for until the Australian ballot in the 1890s. And then you have these reforms that are designed, which really are designed to curtail the voting population and it works. Uh, and so you have a more you have a more individualistic sort of secretive process, secret voting process, adding women in the 1920s. And it continues that way until you get to the 1960s when you have the, Civil, the Voting Rights Act, 1965, and African-Americans now voting in large numbers uh, in the South. Again, that had been disfranchised for in many cases, 80, 80 years, 70, 80 years to that point. So, yeah, there's, that's the long <laughs> run of it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I that's, mean, a, that's a lot of, I mean, a lot of great information. I remembered that in the early, early years, there was a lot of uh, very open uh, voting. Uh, yes. Very similar to the way, the way the British did it. Yeah. Or you just stood out there and, okay, who wants, who's voting Mr. Jefferson, who's voting for Mr. Adams? Right. And wow, you have the whole raising of hands. Okay, what happens when the clown, you know, the clown who raises two hands, or um, <laughs> did, did you keep right. your hand up, Charlie? I mean, keep your hand up, man. You can't put it back down again. Right. They moved to the paper, the paper ballots. I think by, I'm not sure when the first ones appear. I should know this, but um, I think uh, they certainly are used in the 1820s. I mean, I've seen, right. I've seen them. You know. Well, I think that that's when you really had an explosion of newspapers right, throughout, exactly. throughout the country. So that makes that makes perfect sense. Yeah, newspaper, um, right? You had newspapers, and you had parties that right. organized these things. Exactly. Uh, and of course, the uh, newspapers. And it's always so funny when people today. I hear them complain about you know, well, the media is you know, Fox News is for the Republicans or CNN is for the Democrats. I'm like, guys, the media has always been party affiliated. I mean. <laughs> That's, that's why you have that's why you have papers called the you know whatever town Democrat or whatever town Republican. I mean, <laughs> my favorite was um, in St. Louis in 1860. <clears throat> there was a newspaper called the Missouri Democrat and one called the Missouri Republican. Except that the Missouri Democrat supported the Republican Party. The Missouri Republican <laughs> Party. The reason is because the Missouri Republican had originally been a Jeffersonian Republican Party. The okay, Missouri right. Democrat been a Jacksonian Democratic Party, even though they were the same party, Democratic yeah. Republican. You know, but that's that's the origins of it. Or some of you know, uh, I'm just called the Whig, and I'm like, it'd be great if there was just you know, I, I always want to revive the Knoxville Whig. You know, the right, Parson yeah. Brown, those Knoxville Whig and Rebel Ventilator. I mean, <laughs> I, I, want to, I want to revive that. But no, it's a uh, the press was explicitly partisan. And one other thing that's that, that the people, yeah, you know, because we're in a presidential election, that's important to consider too is that electors were not always popularly elected the way they are now uh, it right. took some time there is a uh, there were a few decades between 17 well 1796 let's say the first contested presidential election and uh 1832 where yeah the pro yeah the, the constitution just says that the states will pick a method for choosing the electors. Right. The original idea, of course, is electors would be independent thinkers who would, you know, decide what they want to do, and that went mm -hmm. out the window right away. But the question was who who selects them, uh, especially if they're going to rubber stamp somebody. Who are they rubber stamping for? And at first, the legislatures would just pick them, but then people were not happy about that. A lot of because of the disputes between Jefferson and Adams. I mean, the, the election of eighteen hundred, which threw everything off. Um, you know. They, uh, they started holding, putting this up for popular election. But then there was a question of, do they assign all of the uh, electors based on statewide, which is the way we do it now, or do you do it based on district like Nebraska and Maine do it now or do it some other method? And there was a hodgepodge, and they went back and forth with this. And it was not, not really until the 18, about 1832 that every state except for South Carolina, when we said do things differently, uh, every state except for South Carolina did pretty much what we do now, which is that you hold a popular election statewide, and whoever wins a plurality wins all of the electors. Okay. Um, so, uh, of that of that state, and and I, you know, my personal view is that the problem we have with our electoral college today is not really the fact that there's an electoral college, but it's the winner take all system, right? Because that's at least the distortions of you win a few swing states by a small amount, and you could actually end up with a winner who won less votes overall. But that happened because the states started competing with each other during this early Jacksonian period of, well, we're going to throw in all, all of our, you know, hey, if you win only enough, we're going to throw all of Delaware's electors in, you know, right. make us count, hear, hear us roar, you know, against the others. And New York was actually the last one 
of all those states to okay. to throw in to become fully uh, to do the full um, popular vote for all of the electors. Well, last one except for South Carolina, which didn't until after the Civil War. Their legislature picked their electors. Okay, well, you know, I've always I've always thought that um, if we selected our electors by, for example, congressional district, and then yeah. you know the w- the winner of the state gets the two senatorial equivalents, if you will, sure. then you, you would have an interesting you would have yeah. an interesting situation because you would have in New York, for example, you would have more Republican electors than you have currently. But you'd also have in places like Texas and Louisiana. Right. I mean, there are there, there's always at least one Democratic majority district right. in Louisiana, even as as red as we've become. Right. Same thing in Tennessee. So you'd have you would actually end up with this interesting scenario. And of course, that, my argument is that would actually make the parties more important because you one person couldn't just hit those yeah those safe oh. spots. And oh, I agree. I think I think uh, the only problem with the district approach is that it's um, because of gerrymandering. Right. District- Yes. I think the best thing to do is to do it by proportion. I mean, like uh, the Democratic primary kind of did, like you hit threshold. So in Tennessee, we have 11 electors. And so if you get 111th, 211th, whatever percentage that is, when you hit that, you get that many electors, which will give an incentive for everybody to compete in every state. Right. Go to Texas, you can get the you know twenty first elector, the twenty second elector, or you can go to Nebraska and get one, or go to North Dakota, you know, and that, so you wouldn't have this whole swing state thing. Right, right now, every ele- the election is reduced to six states, and it's yeah. like, well, how about the rest of us? We don't, you know, I mean, I we're, cross- we're all watching Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's all I mean, yeah. I cross North Carolina, and, my, and I matter. Yeah. I'm here. And I don't. Right. I mean, I I live in Louisiana. It doesn't matter if I'm a Republican or a Democrat, for that matter. Right. The state's right. going to be, the state has gone right. republic has gone Republican, and I think it went for uh, Trump in the last election like fifteen points. Yeah. That's he's not going to lose this state. So if you are a Democrat and vote, you're wasting your time. Quite frankly, if you're Republican and vote, you're kind of wasting your time. That's because, what I mean. Everybody, yeah. there's no point exactly. Right. The only place that it really matters is in the uh, is in the the swing states, and that's yeah. not really how it should be, but. We have this system. Uh, that, by the way, that guy Alex Kiesar, Alexander Kiesar, who I mentioned, who wrote the great book about the right to vote. He also wrote a book about the electoral college. Interesting. It came out a few months ago. It's excellent. I haven't. Okay. I, I started reading it, but I haven't read until it looks. It looks great. He's great because he gets at all these the disputes, these efforts to try to eliminate or reform it. So right. Well, you know, a few things that uh, I was thinking about while you were talking. One was about, you know, early on from the very beginning, except for New Jersey, women were not allowed to vote. Right. Uh, but it made me think about that wonderful uh, letter that Abigail Adams wrote to her right. husband at the Continental Congress. Amazing letter. <laughs> right. and, you're, and you think how far ahead of her time this woman really was in so many ways. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yep. And also, you're, you're wondering if, if uh, people would listen to Abigail Adams a little bit more, if uh, what the what the nation would have looked like along the along the way. Yeah, I was curious about you mentioned. You know, of course, we had the symbols, but because papers printed so much, and we talked a few minutes ago about the explosion of newspapers. What was the literacy rate like? I mean, obviously, it's diff- going to be different in different places throughout right. the it's country. Different places, and even places where it was lower, you ha- you had a process of people reading it out loud. It was common for in workplaces for someone to literally read the newspaper out loud to the work to people there. Okay. So even if you couldn't actually read them, you had somebody read it to you. Um, but poll workers, I mean, you know, party party operatives, they were important precisely because mm-hmm. people couldn't always read them, you know, and they would have to. Uh, but you know, if you read these newspapers, they go into all kinds of detail. I mean, every it's it's like the internet today. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not even like social media; it's like the whole internet. I mean, because you have terrible poetry, <laughs> you have you know. Uh, advertisements for baldness cures. You have advertisements for, I mean, everything under the sun that's, uh, that you could imagine. And plus all kinds of rumors and all, I mean, just everything is there. Um, and with the telegraph, it's some of it's coming from hundreds of miles away and some of it's very local and it's just sort of, th- you know, crammed together there in these tight spaces. The newspapers, you know, you're right. It depends on where you live. Some places people are more literate than others. Uh, what I always find amazing is are these fairly small towns that have multiple newspapers um, that sustain them for a long, long time. I mean, newspapers will come and go. The editors will right. you know, run to something else. But, you know, and they're using, you know, print. They're putting the print, you know, the, the stuff there. And, you know, occasionally they get some pretty hilarious errors. And, but, I mean, it's, they, it's remarkable how rarely they do. And they get, you know, they're printing full speeches that take up, you know, tiny font. They're taking up two pages. You know, are people sitting there reading it? But then you think when they go and they give a stump speech somewhere, okay, they have a barbecue at Mr. Robinson's place, you know, orchard, so-and-so, and all these people. And some guy holds a stump for two hours. 
You know, it's like, what? Who the hell wants to listen to you guys speak for two hours? You know, and you think, well, do they have a longer attention span than we do? Well, yeah, but that much longer? I don't know. Because then this one case I was reading recently of a guy in, in uh, Canton, Mississippi, who was running for Congress and had spoke, they described him as speaking for four hours, inter- interrupted by one hour of, of eating, thankfully, as they said. Uh, they were actually mocking. It's crazy. So the editor was sort of mocking this guy running for Congress. And then apparently uh, about a week later, that guy was not was not happy with the editor and ended up shooting the guy. Oh, God. <laughs> but it was really crazy. In fact, um, so I'm writing this book right now about the 1860 presidential election. And that incident actually figures in it because it's it's an example of this kind of violence around politics. Uh, in that case, it's very personal. The South is this sort of personal right. honor. You felt personally offended. But this guy, when I was in Canton visiting this, this guy who, who had shot the uh, rival editor, he his final resting place in the cemetery is right next to the rival editors. Oh. Uh, not the guy he shot, but the, the, his right. rival editors. Okay. Like, they were clearly tight to the point where wow. they still are in the grave. It's it's wild when you when you start seeing those kinds of connections um man who people think they're allied to and so on right yeah there i mean i always tell people that if you think politics are bad and dangerous and violent right now and they are to some extent in some places you still have no i mean as i told someone the other day about how terrible stuff was i said look we do not have Maybe it's a pity. C-SPAN might be more interesting, but we yeah. do not have congressmen literally trying to beat to death a senator right. on the floor of the Senate. While, <laughs> while it would make interesting TV, it would. It's really not something that we have seen, and I think we should all be grateful for it. Yeah. We do That's not right. have mobs in the street, right. um, political mobs in the street. Yes, there are people who are angry about society right. and all that, but right. we do not have political mobs in the street burning down and trying to physically kill right. newspaper editors right. for printing something you know that we don't have the violence of a politician you know doesn't like what a newspaper editor says and so shoots him i mean right. we just right. don't have that and right. um that level right. of violence whereas that was commonplace in right mind. exactly it wasn't like oh it happened it was commonplace yes and, and you joanne freeman at yale i just wrote this wonderful book called the uh, fields of blood about about violence in congress and goes into you know not just the Sumner, the Brooke Sumner caning, but so many other incidents uh, right. of these, these brawls that came out, and and you know the story, the 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 less the the takeaway I got out of it was that you know this kind of violence, personal violence and dueling, you know, continued particularly in the South with honor culture. The North had seemed to do away with it, but then it came back, and the North yeah. had sort of said, you know, you need to strike back at these people. And that's when thing in the South was like, whoa, we thought we could, you know, push them around and now we can't. And that's when, you know, that really ratcheted things up. And right. can, there is a question though about the difference between the sort of casual everyday election violence and a civil war. And that's really one right. of the questions I'm getting at in my book is that, you know, it's, it's one thing that people are fighting each other in the streets over, over, uh, you know, they're, they're, of course, there's always accusations of fraud or ballot stuff or whatever. But it's one thing they're fighting each other in the streets or this, this this stuff. And even in paramilitary form, like, you know, marching the plug uglies or the uh, the wide awakes, whatever. But there's, there's a difference between that and actually going to a shooting war. It's because the whole structure breaks down. I mean, right. it's not just that there's, a, there's not just a rivalry locally. It's that the at the national level, the whole thing is broken down. And so it becomes about something bigger. It becomes about the union. But, the, but it's also simultaneously about what I'm arguing in my book is that it's about how you constitute the democratic polity. And um, you have what makes this so explosive, this moment for the South in particular, is African-American, enslaved African-Americans essentially acting as if they were political beings. I mean, that's why the John Brown's raid was so, was so terrifying. Right. Um, that they were, you know, and that they had this sort of main line to New England abolitionists who were telling them what to do, you know, almost like, you know, you think of ISIS sending, uh, you know, things over the internet that's instantly activating somebody. Like, that was sort of the fear. You think of David Walker's appeal and hiding the book in his jacket. You know, there's all this, this perpetual fear of this thing. And the mysterious fires break out in Texas, or mysterious, you know, and there's this, um, you know, the South was perpetually uh, paranoid about something like that, about a slave insurrection of this sort. And it wasn't just, it, it what would be, it's one thing if they were Yankees that were getting high and mighty. It's another thing if they were enslaved, that there were slaves who were 
you got threatening insurrection. But if the two join together, then right. you got a big problem. Well, I mean, John Brown was John Brown tried to bring about the South's worst nightmare. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that was and his the fact that he was. It wasn't even, and even then, it wasn't that he did it. Everybody knew he was kind of crazy. Right. It was that when he was executed in December the second, when you had northern towns that were ringing church bells for him as a martyr. Right. That's when the deep south said, "We can't live with these people." Right. You know, we uh, these people will slit our throats. You look at the Mississippi Declaration of Secession, and it explicitly mentions it. I mean, that was mm-hmm. you know, and then if a political party, I mean, the more moderate of the sort of deep south people would say that you know, okay, so. So Seward or Lincoln is not going to actually be the next John Brown, but there might be a hundred new John Browns come down and Seward and Lincoln will come up with all sorts of reasons why not to stop it. Right. You know, soft on terrorism. as you know, Right. As yeah. Movement. And I that's mean, well, really how they saw it. And they sort of like, well, can we, can we, uh, I mean, so for all the talk of the aggressiveness and let's expand slavery in the West, it was a very defensive thing that these people were going to create enemies in our own midst. Um, and they became paranoid. And of course also partisan, you know, the, this is uh, William Freeling's argument about South Carolina. The worry was that they would create Hinton Rowan Helper, these anti-slavery white Southerners in Appalachia or the up in the Piedmont, who sensed that slavery was holding them back. You know, the free soil argument in the North was that slavery was bad for white people. Right. You know, that uh, holding up an aristocracy and impoverishing whites. And that if white Southerners start holding that view and then a Republican Party starts organizing the South, I mean, you know, the whole political system comes crashing down. Right. So, those are the things, the crisis moment we saw. One of the things that uh, you, you brought up Grover Cleveland, and yeah. I, I was so it, it was so nice to hear because Cleveland's actually one of my favorite presidents. Oh, okay, um, just and I, 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 when you say that, no nobody ever says. Whenever people would look at you like you like rate the greatest presidents, I always put Cleveland at the top. People are like Cleveland. I'm like, yeah, yeah, he was. First of all, he was just a. a, a a very humorous individual. He was. Second, also, if you really like limited government, Cleveland's your man. For, forget oh, yeah. Coolidge. Cleveland's your man. <laughs> no, that's right. Uh, I mean, Cleveland is uh, – right. He was the ultimate laissez-faire. Yeah. You know. uh, I, I seem to remember uh, – I read a uh, wonderful book about him a few years back, uh, An Honest President. <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to remember the name of the author, but I remember what, one of the things I loved about it was that Cleveland would routinely veto legislation because the wording of it was poorly done. Yeah. And he said, no, because if you give Congress the opportunity to, uh, you know, with, with vague, you know, vague wording, they'll just take it and do whatever they feel like, you know, right. make, you know, make, make it clear what you're, what you're trying to do with this. Yeah. Because then it opens later up for courts to, yeah. It's it's also it's also fun because uh, because of Cleveland's two different uh, non consecutive uh, right right things. You, historians get to play one of those obnoxious trivia things we do. Twenty fourth term. We, yeah. we get to say, okay, uh, Trump is the forty fifth president. How many people have been president? Right, exactly. Everyone's like forty five. Like yeah. you're trying to trick me. I'm like, no, no, no actually, only forty four. Right. <laughs> and they look at yeah, you. Yeah, and 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 in his case, and and like I said before, in his case, mm-hmm. he won the popular vote all three times. Right, exactly. It's just the one yes. time he didn't was, was his home state, and it was because of the internal politics of. And of, uh, and of course, it's it's funny because with the conversation right now about things like do we add more states to the union? Um, right. you know, it's a popular thing right now. Do we break up Texas or California? Do we add Puerto Rico? Um, you know, what do That's we do? Exactly what they did during Cleveland's presidency. Exactly, I said. I said. Some I, I think I can't remember if it was a conversation you and I were having. Somebody else was saying you can't politicize things like that. I'm going. Uh, Almost every state that was brought in the union was done so for political reasons because – I mean that's why we have two Dakotas because right. Harrison wanted two Republican states. Right, and it backfired because they went for the populace anyway. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was Montana, Idaho, um, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming. They all came in 1890. They all – right. It was November 1889, between then and early 1890, yeah. five states came in almost at once. Yeah, and that's right. It was, it was uh, it, all these things, along with the suffrage restrictions, are basic efforts that Harrison thought that he could use to, to stay in power, and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you were mentioning the, the restrictions on voting with the, you know, coming about at the same time with right. primarily being aimed at immigrants, it made yeah. me, of course, think about that was around the time, of course, we stay, started having our, really having our first anti-immigration laws. That's right. That's right. Um, that's that's, people don't realize they're talking about immigration policy. Like, y'all, we did not have immigration policies. And yeah, the Chinese Exclusion Act, right. And then you have the 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 law that I always forget the name of it that creates Ellis Island in eighteen ninety one that really puts the yeah. federal government in charge of of immigration. 
uh, procedures. There's, but, but even, you know, naturalization was very decentralized. Right. I mean, there was, and people could vote if they declare their intent to naturalize. And so that's oh, wow. another, that's another thing. Yeah. Uh, these accusations of, you know, there can't possibly be that many people. They must've imported them from Ireland. Right. No, <laughs> Germany, whatever, you know, it's like every election, there's always accusations of fraud and there's right. always, um, and it never really amounts to anything. It and turns out that it turns out nobody ever thinks there's fraud in the state they win in, though. That's right. Of course not. Amazing. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've I've yet to hear a Democrat suggest fraud in California or Republican fraud in uh, in in Louisiana lately. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it always depends on uh, it always depends on which. Uh, Although which, Trump has weirdly uh, talked about, you know, complained about missing three million, but even though he wins the presidency, right. he still says that there's three million, which is a strange phenomenon. To well, you can say Trump weirdly and just and just kind well, of hang, that's, hang that's, with that's, that one a lot of times when it comes to when it comes to, to actual statistics for reality of weirdness. Yeah. Yeah. But that he was uh, complaining about it in an election that he won. Right. So, yeah. Most people don't complain when they win. Um, yeah. But, you know, hey, there's a first time for everything, apparently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's one exactly. of the things I've also tried to explain to my my, my friends. Uh, I mean, I, I tend to view myself as right of center, though. Mm-hmm. I, one time I considered myself conservative, though now I think I'm I think I've become moderate. I don't know if it's just yeah. because everybody else has gone <laughs> has 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 yeah. veered off or if I've just yeah. gotten older and wiser and more mellow. I don't know about that's true, but um, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure what my wife would say about that. But the Socratic, uh, maybe. Yeah, exactly. When you talk about immigration and to talk about, you know, who gets to vote or how we allow voting to happen is something that Americans don't understand particularly uh i feel on the right and that is we don't understand that immigration has always been a racial issue yeah, sure and voting in many Great ways talk. voting rights have always been about race and gender absolutely and so even when you bring up legitimate conversations like well you know there's nothing illegitimate about a conversation about about immigration policy sure. but you have to remember that the, that this there's this cloud that hovers over it. And right. if you just barge into it without any knowledge, sure. you're opening up, you know, a, a century and a half of, right. of, of, of knowledge. And right. And that's why you have the talk of voter suppression so much, which frankly sometimes is exaggerated. But the reason people are sensitive to it is because there was a very real right. history. Uh, and it's not terribly long ago that it was there. Um, and so people are sensitive to it. And I think, frankly, it backfires when, you know, when Republicans push it too much because, you know, it, that just motivates people to vote. Right. Uh, and, and it's a uh, – yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, you can't, you can't uh, remove it from its, its racialized context. Um, there's also a class context, I mean, um, of trying to uh, eliminate, you know, people who are illiterate or, you know, or not educated or whatever and saying that, you know, well, they can't – they don't know what they're doing. Um, they're just being swayed, whatever. And, you know, nowadays it's interesting because the coalitions, because in the Trump era, the uh, education divide among white voters, you know, that now right. college educated voters are becoming more Democrat and non-college become more Republican. I mean, that didn't just start, but it's, it's right. yeah. uh, really accelerating now. And so you have, an, you have a more of the you know, Twitter, you see these conversations all the time about, you know, who really trusts any kind of thing. Like, and then it's, oh, you're just dumb. You just, you know. Right. It's it's you get these sort of like well you're too ignorant to know what you're doing you know <laughs> and each each side has the ways of accusing the other of just being purely ignorant right. but then again that's nothing new I mean there's always been the uh, you know if if only the smart people could vote you know at least <laughs> right you know right well, I want all the educated people I want I want to how do I win the non-educated people you know <laughs> uh, you know it's like I don't that I don't know if this is exact quote but it's a, <clears throat> something along those lines. But there's always there's a class or a status kind of question about that, and um, and of course it opens up the door for populist upheaval, which creates its own chaos. Right, exactly. But now, um, as, as someone who's from Louisiana, I can definitely you know, attest yeah. to that. Right, I, <laughs> I mean, law the e pop law and the part whatever thing about pop alone and look up a higher one. Yeah, yeah. There you go. I can't even say, it, but it's like oh, the two, yeah. the two, but they're the same thing. It's, yeah. Of course, that kind of charge. Right. Is, uh, I mean, you know, one of the first, it's funny. So one of the first real uh, campaigns of that kind was in Vermont in 1832, the anti-Masonic party. Mm. I mean, you want to talk about a strange phenomenon, <laughs> Masonic party, which I was just actually just writing about um, my book chapter, uh, 
on Vermont, they, uh, it, it, it began as a combination of, of evangelical revivals. Um, yeah, there was the, the, the guy who published the Mason secrets and got murdered who happened to be in Western New York. So all these evangelicals connecting back to Vermont, but there was this anti-elitist, this concern about commercialized agriculture, people losing their position in society. And they looked for some kind of elite cabal of people who to blame. And they said, well, it's the Masons, you know, right. They must be just deciding with their crazy rituals of how to kick us off our farms, you know? Mm-hmm. And and it was is lunacy. I mean, it was not right. actually nothing actually to it. It was a target. But what it showed, what's interesting, what's ironic though, is that this kind of suspicion of you know the market revolution, so to speak, is something you would think would tap directly into Jacksonian democracy. And yet these same people were viciously anti were extremely anti-Jacksonian too. So they didn't like the old sort of federalist type of, you know, elitists, but they didn't like the Jacksonians because they saw them as as slavers who mm. were trying to spread slavery in the West. A lot of them are evangelicals who, uh, they said, the, I mean, Northern evangelical, you know, yes. and who were going to take the best land in the West. So they become Whigs, you know, when this whole thing dies down, but they become conscience Whigs and they become radical, you know, Republicans. And so there's this reformist zeal that comes out of it, but it's a populist, it's kind of a, uh, a distrust of elites. Uh, Vermont is a very strange state anyway. Yes. Um, <laughs> but this example of that strange, mm-hmm. um, and it's a very contrarian. So many Vermonters leave and they go west. I mean, so many leave and go west. And so there's a, a feeling of, and East Tennessee is actually kind of similar this way too. So many people leave and go west. And so you develop this kind of, well, something was wrong with the rest of Nothing's wrong with us. Something's wrong with the rest of the, you know? It's really contrarian sort of bent to it. A um, couple of things here. I'm going to let you go pretty soon. I, I, I appreciate you taking this time to do this. Um, there are a few things that, that I, we sort of hit on in, in the conversation that I had uh, about the Roman Republic yeah. and things that were, that were valued there that you could see the reflections, you know, from one Republic to another, the understanding that you didn't get to own the, the, the political system, meaning that politics was something that everybody took part in. Right. And it wasn't, it wasn't ever supposed to be about, well, if we can just win a supermajority on our side, we can get whatever we want. Right. There was always an understanding that you had to compromise, work together. And part right. of that was because politicians understood at some level, there was a personal system where they understood that it didn't matter if you were the Democrat or the Whig from yeah. Eastern Kentucky. Yep. You voted. You you represented the people of Eastern Kentucky. That's right. You you were not. You know, if you were a Whig and won, you know, in in Eastern Kentucky, you didn't say, "I don't care what the Democrats back home think about anything." Right. You know, I I work for all the all of my constituents, sure. and because of that, I have to also understand that. You know, so that means I can I can compromise to some extent with my Democrat. Um, colleagues in the in the house mm-hmm. because i have democrats back home who i also represent right and when that starts breaking down when we start saying no it's all about my side winning everything and getting all that i want no compromise necessary i'll just beat down my opponent and wait until i can get my team in charge right. that's when a republic starts to collapse on itself yeah well, that's certainly what's interesting is that that's that's certainly what people worried about in the 1820s, <laughs> you know, and that's the moment when political parties become dominant. Right. Uh, there was a uh, it, it's it, it's amazing how long it was. What you're arguing right now is exactly the classical argument that the founders generation made, mm-hmm. uh, even as they were descending into the Federalists versus the Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans. They kept saying, well, we don't really stand for parties. We stand for, you know, the community we represent or the whole republic. The first guy to really openly say, you know, a party's not a bad thing was Martin Van Buren. Martin right. Van Buren is a guy who's not, you want to talk about somebody who needs to be understood, <laughs> respected more, not, not so he as a president, he's a kind of a crappy president, but what he was, what he represented before that, he built the, what was called the Albany Regency, which was essentially the Democratic Party, becomes the Democratic Party, that really is the Jacksonian Democratic Party in New York. And he does it, uh, watching his father, who was a tavern keeper, uh, who was able to sort of carefully mix, but also keep separate business and politics, or, or, or business and pleasure. And very, very machine-like, you know, just in the Hudson Valley, you can get a, get a sense of how the kinds of people that come in and out 
of, of his business. And so Van Buren builds this sort of, sort of patronage system. And a lot of it's based around the Erie Canal. You, you have all these state patronage jobs. And that if you can build people in what was called this bucktail faction, becomes really the Democratic Party, you can build this very partisan loyal thing. But instead of apologizing, it's, instead of saying, well, we're not really doing that, he leaned into it. He said, no, this is a good thing because these represent our common interests. And the, the, this, these do represent the people of the community. And if you don't agree with it, you form a rival, uh, rival political party, and that's fine. And then we will compete there. And then when we're out in the, in the field of, of Congress, we will have to trade you know, in order to get things passed. So you start getting more like the, the modern parliamentary system where the parties are, in, are embedded into the system. Um, <laughs> Van Buren is really the first guy to go that far. And for decades, Americans made the argument exactly as you just pointed out about the early classical Republican view, which is that political parties are, and as Madison you know, pointed out many times, that they are factions that will uh, corrupt people from looking out for the interest. But you know, ironically enough, Madison's Federalist 10 pointed out how in a large Republic, those kinds of large interests can balance each other out, you know, in the, in the scheme of the, of the large, there's of course a limit to all this. And, and a lot of elections to this day turn on whether or not someone has gone off to Washington and forgotten what it's like back here in Omaha. You know I mean? How many elections? Right. Exactly. Oh God. Yes. It's, 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 everything goes away. So there's right. still is the sense that, or oh, this person uh, just wants to be a, a rubber stamp, Chuck Schumer, rubber stamp, Mitch McConnell. They don't really care about what we think here in Maine. They don't really care. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So this is, it's still very much a part of how we, 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 right. You know, are you, are you, have you forgotten your people and all you care about is your party bosses or, yeah, that's still something obviously that's very important. I mean, Biden's campaign is all about, I, I may be a proud Democrat, but I pr- plan to represent even people who, who don't vote for me. I mean, you know, it's like, whoa, like there's something right. step out of that partisan, hyper-partisan tradition. Mm-hmm. And people want to hear that, you know, that's, that's the small R Republicanism, the classical Republicanism right. we're talking about, that I think does rightly have a lot of appeal. But the reality is also, of course, that people do look to the parties as ways to organize, to mobilize for votes, for mobilize for, for uh, priorities, to get things, you know. Right. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're not necessarily bad things. They're, they, they can, the, it's like many things, the abuse of parties. It's exactly. It's the balance. Um, right. right. When, well, when it becomes, all what my party wants or nothing. Right. right. When it becomes a, there, there's a, I know, I'm trying to remember, I believe it was Shelby Foote I heard in an interview one time talk about how the genius of America <laughs> is always that we knew how to compromise. Yeah. We think right. we're non-compromised, but we actually are. Compromise is our genius. And we're, when, when Americans fail is when they stop learning how to compromise. Right. Or you pretend you can't come, or you think you can wipe out the other. I was just having this conversation with some students the other day about how, you know, there's an illusion people think that if there's a wave election coming or whatever, that oh, we'll wipe out the other side once for good. That almost yeah. never happens. No. And actually, it does never happen. I mean, even in FDR in the 30s, which is about the closest you'll come to it, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he wins a whole bunch, as a succession of just blowout elections. And then 1938, you know, comes. Right. It didn't take that long. I mean, you know, maybe the White House was out of Republican hands for for a long, long time, but you know, it's, it's not the, it's not everything. Uh, right. 2016, the Democrats were in the worst position since like the twenties, mm-hmm. but then, yeah, they came roaring back in the 18. There's no, there's, there's no, we're never gonna have one party state. And we're not, right. we may have one party individual states, but we're mm-hmm. not going to have one party as a country. Right. Well, I think that's um, some of it is because politicians quite often don't realize that a lot of people that, um, uh, when they win, when they get an office with a, you know, even when it is a landslide or a wave, yeah. they won not because people liked them, but because people didn't like the person right. that they, they ran against. Yeah. I mean, you know, who who knows what it's going to be like when on on uh, November second this year with, with the election. But if there is a if there is a Joe Biden wave, I think most of us are going to agree. It's not that the whole world is in love with Joe Biden. It's that they didn't like. Trump. It's just there's a lot of people who don't like Donald Trump. So and the question then has become: Who? What are you going to get from the guy that you've now? Yeah, the governor right. problem is the big one right then, right? And and the and the and the danger becomes just like uh, I heard someone say earlier that you know in two thousand nine the most important thing that Barack Obama was was not or two thousand eight when he was elected was he was not George W. Bush and he was the first black president so he 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 accomplished these two things which he accomplished both of those things on the first day of his term. Unfortunately, he viewed 
that he had a huge overwhelming mandate. And so the party yeah. races forward to do whatever they want. And then people are like, whoa, backlash. That's not what. Right. And the other thing was that it wasn't even just that there's backlash, but there was dissent in terms of what exactly they're going to do. Right. You had to please one side, not please the other. Right. And you ended up more like, now, it wasn't as bad as 1994. Well, yeah. <laughs> 1994, they got nothing passed. Well, right. they, got, they didn't get the healthcare thing. But, uh, but it was something that politically was not enough to energize. Because one thing, if you get something passed, it's controversial, but it energizes the base to come out. Right. This one didn't. It got, it, it got things passed, but it was not enough to energize. And so instead, it energized the opposition. Right. It happened in the sense this year. And so you all know what happens. So, and, and, so, and that's what happens. I mean, so a lot of times that, that you know, what a wave right. can, you know, a wave goes out and a wave comes back. That's right. which is what right. waves right. do. You wouldn't think 2022 would be a wave back, right? Exactly. Right. And it's a, uh, I mean, the, the genius of the American system is its ability to self-correct. I mean, right. all the ways, whether it's the different branches or whether it's the federal versus the states, whether it's the parties. I mean, we have this genius way of self-correcting. Um, and it's a, it's a remarkable that this, you know, this uh, constitution that was, you know, created, uh, really learning the lessons of the failures of the Articles of Confederation. But it was, you know, with only, it's only been amended 27 times mm-hmm. over 200 and some odd years that it has stood the test of time. And of course there are things that many Americans would like to be amended right now. And I think right should, but <clears throat> the general framework that has stood the test of time and it's unique in the world where we have a non-parliamentary system, you know, right. every other democracy in the world is parliamentary. Um, but that's, I think, a you know, a testament to uh, the genius of the compromise of, of the people at the time. Um, but it also requires a political culture that, that I wouldn't say reveres it. I don't like that word there, but it's, but that tries to work with the tools that it provides. Right. Um, and there are a lot of them <laughs> and yes. there's always more that people haven't thought of, you know, to get things, get things done. And, and that's, uh, and that's, you know, when do we declare that the norms are broken, you know, or that things are, it's mm-hmm. well, when do you decide that the other side used to me, you didn't like it. Right. You know? Exactly. I mean, you know, a lot of times everybody's breaking norms, but if one has become a problem is when it's used. Very few people, and this is a, this is an argument. Let's see about the Civil War too. Is that very few people will go to the mattress, so to speak, and Godfather speak. Well, so very few people will go to the mattresses in order to defend a pure process. It's usually there's some substantive thing underlying it. You know, maybe some judges will see things more consistently in terms of federalism or whatever. But most uh, politically oriented people, whether voters or politicians. Are, are using the various tools in order to advance a substantive position. And they will very quickly come on both sides of that same process argument because it works. One thing I, I, was, I wanted to ask you about, because I just found it so interesting this week, it may, it may be next week before this drops, but uh, we're recording right now on the, the 21st, so just, just for, the, for the context of, of whatever this drops, people can right. listen to us. The president this week announced that this was making character great again or focusing on character week or some sort of one of those kind of things and you know trying trying my best you know to be professional here and put my uh, comments aside on on Donald Trump focusing in on character on a positive sense <laughs> the all, all satire aside if we were to go back to 200 BC in Rome or even 100 BC in Rome, and talk to Cato and Cicero, or forward to the modern era uh, and talk to James Madison or George Washington, mm-hmm. or for that matter, Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, mm-hmm. uh, and probably even FDR and um, you know Dwight Eisenhower, and were to say that character is an, a good character, a good personal character is an essentially important and necessary thing in a leader. I don't think any of those people from any of those eras would look at you and say, no, it's not. In fact, they'd look at you and go, yeah, like the sky's blue, the water's wet. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that that's the one of the thing that's different about Trump was his, I mean, he would take things like, you know, I ripped off the government and that makes me better because I'll, because then he would turn around and say, I'll rip off the government for you. Right. You know, but that's, yeah, that was, he, he almost turned character on its head, like characters for suckers. Right. You know, characters, something for suckers. And that's, that's been jarring for a lot of center right people. A lot of people who have been accustomed to seeing, you know, the importance of character, you know, which has often been a more conservative 
trade and seeing a guy who so blatantly just dispenses with the idea of character they're just basically like that's again that's for suckers you know it's a, it's about power it's deals and power you know and that's right. all it is and well and the, and the openness to talk about it like that i mean yes right. we've we've i mean we're not idiots we know that you know these yeah. people i mean i was again i'm from louisiana i, I yeah. i'm from the state of, of yeah. early huey huey long earl long and edwin edwards um, yeah, edwin edwards, exactly. yeah i mean <laughs> I, I, the crook. it's important right exactly um you know once again, I remember the year before I was old enough to vote, thank God, where the the uh, the final governor's race, the runoff between Edwin Edwards and David Duke. Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, Crook or the Klan. I mean, you know, right. it's like it was, yeah. we're not children in the woods to say that politicians are these great moral characters. And as right. historians, part of part of the job of historian is to not necessarily sully or destroy those images, right. but to bring bring the gods back down to earth. Uh, absolutely. But I think that there's something about the performance, though, that matters. Yes. I think there's, there's a performance, there's a ritual nature of of showing that that uh, you acknowledge that this is about more than yourself. Right. Um, even though we all know you're a large part in it for yourself, we, we don't want we don't want you to be so blatant about it. You know what I mean? Because that's there's there, everybody's maintaining somewhat of the illusion. I mean, that's the small mm-hmm. R Republican illusion is that right. you know, everybody is public, public virtuous, virtuous, you know, mm-hmm. public oriented citizen. But we also know in classical liberalism is that everybody's self interested. So you have the it's the melding of these things together of the individual liberalism for yourself and the and small R Republicanism, which is you know for the greater good of you know, serving the public um there's always been a tension about that but those things meld together in terms of process in terms of adherence to norms and traditions and even when they're broken they're broken in a way that's considered within bounds you know, like fdr's court packing thing. i mean you know, there's there's moments where it's like well that's, that's a step too far you know somebody goes just simply too far i think the thing with trump is that he just threw that completely at people you know it's just sort of like this extreme crassness so it makes people feel that this is nihilism that it's become um, that that's where I think you have this more apocalyptic sense. I mean, I, I don't know how I, I, I guess maybe I'll see how I feel after the election, <laughs> you know, which, you know, because right. I mean, obviously, you know where I feel about it, but it's, it, I mean, if he's voted out, um, then I'll say that this is another self-correcting moment that, mm-hmm. you know, he was a product of anger at Hillary Clinton, really, you right. know, and the establishment of, and Jeb Bush and all this, you know, and then here was this guy who was temporarily brought in as the kind of the hammer to break things up. But then it was like, okay, you've done enough. You've, you've done enough. <laughs> but if he wins again, you know, then it's like, okay, now where are we? You know, then right. it's, which I do think is really a bigger question. And of course, I have no idea what will happen right now. I'm, right. I'm out of the prognostication. I'm, I'm, I'm away from the forecasting business, you know? Right. Yes. <laughs> I mean, times like, but, you know, we all see what the polls say. We all see what they say. They could be wrong. But, you know, the fact is that – but I think that's right. And there's the stakes, though, are, are that, you know, are we codifying that shift that happened or are we going to – and we'll never go back to exactly what was before. But right. are we at least saying, okay, that was a step too far. Maybe we need to restore some semblance of normalcy. Right, yeah. I'm going to let you let you get out of here, but I wanted to ask you. We were kind of you know green rooming before I hit record, and yeah. you brought up two uh, two great sounding books. Yeah, and uh, was wondering if you would share that. Yeah, so about voting, uh, Alexander Kesar, K E Y S S A R, um, his book called "The Right to Vote" it was an excellent book about um, about the expanding franchise. It goes from pretty much late colonial times up to the present fascinating book uh really really well done and and he but and he has a more recent book about the electoral college too um the other one though that i had mentioned that i want to suggest for the this sort of mechanics of voting was by richard franklin bensell b-e-n-s-e-l called the ballot box in the 19th century and uh it's it, it it's based around research into contested elections because you get all sorts of juicy details about <laughs> you know election judges and ballots and what they look like and how they were um, you know, manhandled and whatnot. Um, it's a, that's another really good one that gets into the sort of the mechanics of the voting process. Well, Aaron, thanks so much. Now I understand you. Now you just finished editing a book. I, just I think I saw a historiography of slavery um, that will be out with Kent State Press in May. It was a collaborative effort, obviously. Right. Several historiographic essays. Um, I'm working on a 
uh, bigger book project right now on the 1860 presidential election. It's called Electing Civil War, about constitutional democracy. And I'm sort of working with the idea of constitutional democracy as a tension. Even Habermas sort of mentioned there's a tension between a constitution as constituting as sort of this um, firming up what is the democratic polity and then the various decisions made by that democratic polity that could undermine the very thing that's empowered it um and so that is a uh, that's coming so so as the country descends into civil war how people are maintaining the sense of democratic the democratic sensibilities even as they're going off to war to fight against each other well those sound fascinating and definitely want you to come back and uh talk about maybe in may we'll come back and talk about slavery so the slavery book and yeah. uh and then just been a lot a lot, been a lot of fun talking so i appreciate yeah, it so uh thanks for thanks for coming okay Okay, thanks once again to Dr. Aaron Astor for coming on and talking to us about voting. You can find Dr. Astor on Twitter at Astor Aaron. Aaron is also the author of The Civil War Along Tennessee's Cumberland Plateau and Rebels on the Border, Civil War, Emancipation, and the Reconstruction of Kentucky and Missouri. Links to both of those books can be found in the podcast notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends Go online, give it a five-star review. Please subscribe. You can also check out our website, historia.substack.com, for book reviews, reflections on history and culture, and many more things. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, and we look forward to seeing you next time.